Okay, um, let me first say a little bit about me and my background. Um, I'm, you might say I'm a scientific child of the 60s. Um, I started out in mathematics. Um, I was accelerated in math early, majored in college, and started in math in graduate school. And I also had a father who was a research biologist, biochemist, MD, and so very strong science background. Um, but also, then, then the 60s affected me in two different ways. First of all, I had to leave graduate school, this was in 68, because mine was the first um, class of graduate students not to have automatic student deferments. And through family connections, I was able to get two years public health service at National Institute of Health. So it was a biological setting in which I met some neurobiologists. Plus, I decided with everybody wanting to make their field relevant, I wanted to make math and science relevant. So the connections to psychology via the brain seemed to be the best way to do that. Um, so I ended up getting a degree that's officially applied math, but it really ties in to understanding of the brain. And I've been doing computational modeling, uh, neural networks, for a long time. Uh, I was president of the International Neural Network Society for a year. Um, and recently, I've supplemented that with also doing some experimental psychology, um, particularly dealing with decision making. Um, but it's this kind of work is where I was trying to head all this time connecting it to social issues and giving a sense based on who we are as people, our biological nature, um, what that says about social issues. Um, and the handouts I gave you are pretty much the same as what I've got on the slides, except condensed a little bit. So you can sort of semi-follow the slides through the handouts. Okay, that's my website. I've got some non-technical stuff as well as uh, technical stuff there. I've given talks like this to various places, including sermons at um, the Unitarian Church in Fort Worth, I've given several, um, related to uh, my work and its implications for social, philosophical, and personal issues. All right, well, question here, and most of this talk is based on um, an, a paper that I submitted to a journal called Utopian Studies, and I'm still waiting to hear about its acceptance. Um, how much of our physiological makeup, psychological makeup, is genetic and environmental? And what does this say about the limits of the possible for human social organization? The old nature-nurture controversy, which everybody's sick of by now. <laughs> Anthropology has tended to emphasize the cultural influences. Behavioral biology has tended to emphasize genetic influences. Well, my point of view philosophically, deciding on truth based on what your intellectual discipline is a form of intellectual dishonesty. The split is silly, and more people are realizing both disciplines study the same phenomena from different viewpoints. 
So there should be an underlying reality that's consistent across different disciplines, regardless of disagreements in terminology. And the behavioral biologist E.O. Wilson called it consilience. Now, I have some different ideas about consilience. That consilience, Wilson's idea of consilience is reducing everything down to evolutionary biology. Mine's a bit different. And extreme positions are on the wane, and more and more scientists are coming to the conclusion that, yeah, genes are important, but they express themselves through environmental influences. Ah, here we go. Too much of the laser pointer, too much light here. All right. Uh, and Matt Ridley, the journalist, has written a good book, and I got in the handout about nature via nurture instead of nature versus nurture. And that's especially true of the brain, more than any other part of the body. And why is that? Well, the overall function of the brain is to mediate between the rest of the body and the outside environment, as this picture shows. And in order to do that effectively, it has to be able to change with the environment. So more and more evidence has come up of what's called neuroplasticity, that experience shapes the brain, which wasn't really believed or known until about mid-1960, with some work in invertebrates. I can give people some of the history, but I don't want to veer off too far right now. Now, there's brain plasticity throughout life, and it takes on different forms. In childhood, we're building up our basic sensory, motor, and cognitive wiring. Cats who are raised with only seeing horizontal stripes become blind to the vertical in adult life. Um, kids who are in orphanages who are not getting a lot of cognitive and social stimulation, and there was a bunch of those in Romania under Ceausescu, they, cognitive development, even if they've gotten enough nourishment, their cognitive development gets way behind. And the adolescents were still getting this kind of wire building in the most advanced part of our brain, the frontal lobes, which are involved in morality and planning and so on. Now, as adults, there's some change in wiring, but not a lot. But there can be changes in the strength or weakness of existing connections in the brain based on experience. So that's why we do continue to learn and to change and to grow during adulthood. And in fact, if you talk about evolution and genetic patterns, that doesn't tell the story because there are conflicting adaptive behavioral patterns. What's called fight or flight, defending territory, aggression, escaping from danger, versus what's called tending and tend and befriend. That was popularized by social neuro-oriented social psychologist Shelley Taylor, based on bonding and cooperation. Now, does evolution select one or the other? Both. Both friend and fight or flight and tend to be friend are useful for different situations. So we are wired to cooperate and compete. We don't always make wise decisions about when to do which, but that's another story. But society and upbringing can bias us toward one or the other. And there's an article I'm going to point you on my website in which 
I've worked on that. My co-author, you may have heard her name, Rianne Eisler. She's author of several books, of which the best known is Chalice and the Blade. The kind of a feminist orientation toward ancient history and um, expressing the belief that there were societies in the past which had more of an orientation toward cooperation. And her most recent book, which I haven't read, is called The Real Wealth of Nations, about a humane, caring kind of economics. Um, I got to know her through a variety of um, interconnecting contacts, and we wrote this article together for a special issue of an now-defunct journal called Brain and Mind. So the easiest way to get it is from my website. And we talked about the brain pathways for these things. The competitive patterns involve cortisol, which is a stress hormone, norepinephrine, which is kind of an arousal transmitter. Competitive patterns include oxytocin and vasopressin. Some people have heard of oxytocin, which is called the cuddle hormone, and I'll come back and talk about more about it later. And there's an area of the frontal lobes called the orbital prefrontal cortex, which is kind of a connecting link between quote-unquote rational and emotional regions of the brain, which seems to be sort of the major driver for deciding between these patterns based on social influences. And this is how a pattern of caring or abuse as a child, for example, or a society that fosters a hierarchical or a partnership organization can bias people toward one or another way of acting. Is the second supposed to be cooperative? Yeah, uh, where are you? Competitive twice. Did, did the second one, it was supposed to be cooperative pattern? Uh, cooperative, correct. I'm sorry. Yeah, one. Competitive patterns is cortisol and norepinephrine. Cooperative is oxytocin and vasopressin. Yes. Oh. Sorry about that. <clears throat> All right. But in addition to the fact that they're conflicting evolutionary patterns, not all biological functions boil down to survival and reproduction. And this is something that some of my scientific colleagues have a hard time saying. But I really think that a lot of the opposition to the idea of evolution from spiritual and religious people, starting even with William Jennings Bryan in the 19th century, is based on the fact that evolution somehow dehumanizes or despiritualizes human beings. But it doesn't have to, and Darwin himself never intended for it to. Darwin believed that natural selection or survival of the fittest couldn't account for human altruism, for example. And we've got other needs which may or may not have been selected for in evolution, but are still needs meaning, bonding, and pleasurable stimulation. Uh, part of what is sometimes called self-actualization, too. Um, I don't think there's an evolutionary selection for the state of trait of self-actualization, but that doesn't promote survival, but still it promotes meaningful living. And other mammals partly share these needs. Prairie voles, which are like mice, form stable pair bonds oxytocin and vasopressin are involved in that, which both parents nurture offspring. And animals can seek and work for stimulation that give, just gives them pleasure, but has no survival or reproductive value. 
And Harry and Margaret Harlow, in an article in Scientific American, wrote about infant monkeys that were removed from their mothers, given a choice of two artificial mothers, one made of wire and providing milk, the other made of cloth and not providing milk. And some of you know, even though they grabbed the milk, they just sort of took the milk and ran from the wire mother and really spent their time with the cloth mother. And the moral is that the real mothers are just as important for hugging and physical stimulation as they are for food. And that was a revolutionary statement in those days. Now, the frontal lobes, there are several areas of the frontal lobes involved in what's called executive function, which is planning behavior. Um, this orbital area ties into the amygdala, which is an emotional region. Um, Damasio's book, Descartes' Error, Antonio Damasio, um, showed that Gage's primary area of damage, Phineas Gage was a um, famous patient in the 19th century who had a railroad accident, a bar went through his head, and he lost the ability to make decisions, to plan, and to do things appropriate in society because he was damaged in that area. And Damasio studied other patients who were damaged in that area who were terrible decision makers. And there's some other frontal executive regions that are important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them um, because I want to talk about social change and utopias is kind of the heart of this thing. Involved in switching or selecting among different interpretations or different ways of acting. Another area involved more abstract processing and working memory. So all these areas, and I'll briefly show you where these areas are located on the next slide. Um, your dorsolateral, really hard to get the pointer working when there's so much light in the room, but um, your dorsolateral area is kind of off to the side and front. Your orbital is down further toward the orbital bone of the eye. Your medial is toward the midline of the brain. These are all part of the frontal lobes, the prefrontal cortex. And they interact in a lot of complex ways with each other and with regions below the cortex that we inherited from other mammals. And <clears throat> these are all involved in different ways of forming rules about what actions to perform and what actions not to perform. Okay, so I'm going to talk about rule formation. Individuals have rules of behavior, rules for, okay, I'm at this restaurant, I'm at this venue, I talk this way, I'm on the street, I do something else, I'm in the store, I do something else. Um, I don't, I don't talk about politics to such and such relatives because they'd be offended, et cetera, et cetera. Um, societies have rules of behavior, both in formal customs and laws, just as individuals do. Utopian societies have rules like any other society. They're not anything goes, they just have different rules. For example, Ecotopia, which is one of my favorite utopias I'm going to talk about, they were less restricted than we were in terms of 
sex in the family, but because they believe in preserving the environment, much more restricted economic growth and pollution. They didn't even allow people to have private cars. Now, how might utopian societies be different from others? Well, I'm going to talk about one of my mentors at National Institutes of Health, the late behavioral ecologist John Calhoun, most of whose work is hard to find. He wrote an article in Scientific American about how crowding disrupts behavior in rats. And that's what everybody knows him for. And they think he's all gloom and doom as a result. But he isn't. <clears throat> because he studied crowding, he started looking at human populations and the growth in human history and concocted this very elaborate mathematical theory that I ha don't know if I 100% believe it, but has some basic germs of good ideas. The major adjustments, the major revolutions in human thought, like the agricultural, religious revolution, the scientific revolution, the communications and cybernetic revolution we're going through now, were adjustments made to cope with stresses caused by rising populations. And they occurred at certain cycles in the population cycle. And now the population growth is getting faster and faster, so they're getting to be more and more revolutions. And here is this schema of history. You'll see that on the right, the numbers of years apart are much, much less than they are on the left. Uh, each successing one is half the length of the previous one. So you go from the Homo sapiens to the agricultural, about 30,000 years, then to the religious, actually a quarter of the length, agricultural to the religious revolution, the religious to the artistic revolution, which spawned the Renaissance, the artistic to the scientific revolution, now the communications peaking during the Reagan years, followed by the, if we're wise, and if we handle things well, the compassionate revolution sometime in the first quarter to third of this century. Now, what is the compassionate revolution, if it ever happens, consistent? Here is Calhoun's description. Awareness and participation in the realization of values held by others. An awareness that many people experience difficulty in developing and altering their roles in accordance with the demands of an overall system, which is changing and becoming more complex, and requires attention to assisting others. In other words, we're taking the rapid technological change, and the compassionate revolution is saying, whoa, let's look at the human cost of it, let's deal with the stresses, let's deal with the loss of traditional society, the loss of meaning, the loss of spirituality. See if we can hold on to our technology, our scientific advances, and also help people. And by the way, and I'm not going to spend time on this, Calhoun looking to the future beyond that said it would have to be accompanied by drop in world population to work. And drop in world population would be in turn accompanied by other technological adjustments. But that's a whole other story, and I'm not going to spend time. I'm just going to 
use this as a backdrop for a couple of utopian societies and tying those into what I know about the brain. Now, which utopias in fiction embody the compassionate revolution? Some of the best known of utopias, which are top-down with charismatic leadership, somewhat dictatorial, don't very well. Like Thomas More's or Edward Bellamy's or B.F. Skinner's. I mean, the distinctions I'm drawing could be criticized as overly rich, but by and large, these rely on charismatic leadership, which kind of imposes things and talks at everybody. The other ones that I talk about had some charismatic leadership, but it more kind of evolved in society. Decentralized ones. And you'll note all the Huxleys, Ernest Kallenbach, Ecotopia, which was set in um, Northern California and the Pacific Northwest, and Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, which was set in a future in Cape Cod with somebody who's a mental patient in New York communicating with the future and making it happen. Um, and you notice when all these were written. Early 60s to mid 70s. Tells you something. We need to bring back some of that spirit. Yeah, man. All right. So these are the three authors I'm going to focus on and then tell what they have in common and how what they have in common relates to the brain. Now, what attributes do these utopias share? All right, three things which I, I went in for this article and looked at. Well, how are they similar? There were episodes in them that were strikingly similar to each other, and I'm going to mention a few of them. Um, they're not, the handout doesn't mention the episodes, but the slides will. The three big pillars were a higher level of trust than we have, data, average trust of average people toward average people, community, a sense of community without having to conform to be part of that community, and a sense of delight, enjoyment. There's other subsidiary features which are supportive of that, and which I'm going to spend most of the rest of the talk on. Child rearing that's oriented toward independence, larger and fluid family units, not the tight nuclear family we have, emotional openness, conflict resolution oriented toward mediation rather than winning or losing, gender equality, and what I broadly call democracy of creativity. And democracy of creativity means, first of all, even though you have great artists and scientists, you also have a wide range of people creating and that are accepted. Uh, your artists and scientists still participate in the Scott Work of Society. And people on so-called menial jobs, like clerks and waitresses, are encouraged to be creative. And to not just do their job. All right. Now, what are some examples of this? Your child rearing. The Society of Pawa in Huxley, which is an island somewhere in the Indonesian archipelago, which had its own society, encouraged children's sense of delight in the world. And the also interesting thing that the Polynesians had is they detect children with antisocial tendencies, including potential future dictators, bullies, 
and tried to redirect such tendencies. Um, tragically, one of those children got kind of diverted by contact with, he was kind of the child of a princess from a nearby country and the Raja, and the nearby country had too strong an influence on him, and that kind of scuttled the society toward the end. That's, that's sad. But, and then in Kallenbach's Ecotopia and Piercy's, there's a town called Mattapoisit where she had it, and that's a real town on the Cape, but this was like in 2137. You have school children participating in the business of society, learning by doing, as well as being in the classroom. You know, it's not child labor. It's sort of like they learn, they learn by doing as well as learning in the classroom. Your family units. Uh, the Polynesians have what's called a mutual adoption club, and um, children can, any time they're sick of their parents, they can say, "Okay, I'll go to this other family within the mutual adoption club for a while." Ecotopia, similarly. Uh, people live in these large units they call families. Some of them are attached to common enterprises, like the narrator was a visiting American reporter who eventually settled there, and he was in a family commune devoted to journalism. Um, now the narrator asked a boy whose mother was gone for a week if this made him lonely, and he said, why should I be lonely? Everyone else is here. Emotional openness. All these three novels have a visitor from the outside world. And each novel, the visitor experiences culture shock with the intense emotional expression. And it's particularly strong in Pala, where this um, Englishman who's lost trying to get to one of the other islands, um, the first he encounter, the first Polynesian person he encounters um, is a young girl. And she hears him say, well, he encountered the snake when he was getting there. And she asks him to work through his feelings about the encounter with the snake. And that disconcerts him no end. But eventually he, as well as the narrator in um, Ecotopia and the woman mental patient in Woman on the Edge of Time, eventually find the openness refreshing and really get used to it. And I'll show an example of uh, Will Weston, the narrator in Ecotopia, and what he got to like. Conflict mediation. Ecotopia. A restaurant customer complains that his scrambled eggs are overcooked. And instead of the boss yelling at the cook, there's a discussion ensues. You know, the customers really like this gal, Ruth, who's doing the cooking. And, you know, they don't want this customer to pick on her. So they find that she has a workload, um, and so they offer to help her. And everybody's happy, including the complainer. And there's a political assembly in Cape Cod where there's a dispute about use of a resource, and somebody suggests using a different resource for one of the things. And sometimes if they're winners and losers, but if that's the case, then the winners have to treat the losers to something. So that the losers don't feel like losers. Gender equality. All three of the societies, women hold power, um, there's a woman president in Ecotopia. They perform the hard physical work, and the men openly express emotions, including feelings of weakness, and they're not less of a man for that. And you have traditional female caring values blended with 
traditional male assertive values. Democracy of creativity, uh, I've explained most of it. Now here's an interesting episode from Ecotopia. Um, this guy's a newspaper reporter. He's sending back dispatches to the Post Times, some kind of merger between the Washington Post and the New York Times of what's going on there. They're, they're giving a whole column about, you know, these curious savages out in Ecotopia. Um, and there's a wire service clerk named Jerry, and Will Weston fusses that Jerry is spending his time reading and commenting on these dispatches instead of just doing his job and sending them. But eventually, uh, the wire service clerk imagines he falls in love with a woman in Ecotopia. Um, and he imagines being back in New York and trying to call her and they're saying, sorry, we can't complete that call. No, no diplomatic relations. And he says, well, Jerry would know that the call was important and he would route the call through Timbuktu if he had to. So he appreciates, he's learned to appreciate a wire service clerk who doesn't just do his job. Now, what does this have to do with the brain? This is going to be the last part of the talk. All right? Can our, that should be, can our brains create, not created, societies with these utopian attributes? I think so, or at least I believe that enough is unknown that we need to proceed under the assumption that we can. Isaac Bashev, singer, once said, we got to believe in free will, there's no choice. Um, and also there's arguments, I have some arguments that these attributes promote optimal brain function. The democracy of creativity, I know less about how that operates in the brain, because how brains operate in social systems is still a uh, new frontier that has to be opened. Now, your child-rearing, the stuff that Rian Eisler and I dug up, the work of various investigators, a guy named Bruce Perry in Houston, various other people, talk about the traumatic, lasting effects on the brain of child abuse. We think that there are lasting positive effects of caring, but that's less well-known. Nancy Eisenberg, a social psychologist at Arizona State, wrote a book about called The Caring Child about how children raised in a caring manner become caring adults. As far as the exposure to multiple adults, if you've got more than your parents teaching you motor skills or cognitive skills, you're likely to learn them better. Uh, Robert Bjork is another UCLA psychologist who has done a lot showing that cognitive skills are learned best from multiple sources. You know, that's why when I teach large classes, I teach through slides and through the book and through lectures. All right, emotional openness. Damasio showed that emotions are important for effective decision-making. If there was this emotional-rational split, it made decision-making flat and hard to do. They're terrible decision-makers. So this suggests that if social mores encourage honesty in showing emotion, they'll also encourage communication accuracy. Now one side effect of this, which I haven't really thought of, but I think is related, is encouragement of people on the job to express discontent without any, to express 
um, discontent both personally and about the nature of the work they're doing, if the, or decisions by their bosses. I mean, I think there do have to be hierarchies sometimes, but people should be free to express um, disagreement um, so that things can be done more efficiently and policies can be challenged. Communication accuracy is good for doing things, getting things done. Conflict mediation. Um, really terrible hostile conflicts generate a lot of cortisol, the stress hormone. A little cortisol is good for responding to emergencies, but too much really interferes with cognitive function. A guy named Robert Sapolsky at Stanford has discovered that too much cortisol interferes with an area called the hippocampus, a brain region that consolidates new memories. And similarly, positive affect, mild positive affect, can enhance creativity. And a guy named Greg Ashby, UC Santa Barbara, has a theory about how it involves another neurotransmitter, dopamine. Uh, and you can get positive affect from successful conflict resolution. Gender equality, the effects of oxytocin. Now, oxytocin and vasopressin are two closely related hormones. And one of them is more tied into female hormones and the other to vasopressin. But it turns out that this lab at University of Maryland found that really both are necessary for pair bonding in both sexes. And so that oxytocin and the kind of bonding that Shelley Taylor developed is not an exclusively female thing, even though she sometimes wrote like it should be. Um, and in humans, oxytocin administered intranasally seems to induce trust in both sexes. Oxytocin, by the way, is a hormone that doesn't stay around in the body for a long time. There's others that stay around for longer that it helps to engender. Now, this democracy of creativity, how that operates in the brain, we know a lot less about. We know that creativity is a universal human need. Harlow, the same people who did the uh, wire and cloth mothers, showed that it was important for monkeys to um, be able to work with puzzles and do things on their own and create. But social neuroscience, as it's called, there's a book on social neuroscience edited by these two guys, Cassiopo and Bernson, but it's still a wide open area. So how the difference between a democratic system and a hierarchical system, whether it's in politics or whether it's in the generation of ideas, how that works in the brain is still something wide open. I'm, by the way, part of a team that's gotten a grant from National Science Foundation to study creative brainstorming, including the effects on the brain. So maybe we'll find something there. So uh, this is the last slide. I just want to sum up and say that we have some tie-ins between the brain and optimal social organization, and we have a lot that we're trying to find out. And your consilience comes about because not only does the biology drive our hypotheses about society, but our society, our social views, including political and religious and literary and other views, can drive our hypotheses about the biology. So consilience between biology and the social sciences is a two-way street. 
and not a one-way street. And that's what I've got now. Thank Thanks. you. Okay, now we have question and answer. Um, so try to keep your question to like one or two sentences, please. No sermons, just a question. Some people really get going. Yes, over there. Over here. Back uh, before World War II, the departments of psychology and philosophy in universities often occupied the same space. And I was wondering, what is this? The level of study of psychology here, what does it have to say to philosophy? To what, to, to what extent are values constructed by psychology? Um, to what extent are values necessary to develop trust? Does philosophy have a role in developing trust? How does society develop trust? Uh, okay. This is a philosophy <laughs> organization. The questions are appropriate. Yeah. All right. First of all, I would not say that science of any sort creates values. Science tells you how to achieve values. From my math background, I know the difference between axioms and theorems. Science, for the most part, gives you theorems. Um, axioms have to come from values or axioms. So, yes, philosophy... Uh, I guess part of your question is motivated by the fact that over history, as natural sciences become closer, it's more and more encroached in the territory of philosophy. Um, but I don't think it's going to occupy it altogether, because there's always going to be people deciding what the good is, or what the true is. Now, I do think that what psychology can tell you psychology combined with the neuroscience, the current scientific psychology, can tell you is that there is a kind of natural tendency toward certain values in human beings, but the science, the psychological science can't in and of itself tell you this is good and that is not good. But it can tell you where people, the people have a natural tendency to believe certain things are good. Um, Although, of course, a lot of what sci science comes up with is statistical things with individual differences. But even so, I think it can tell that. But it can't tell you what are your values are supposed to be. It can tell you more about what kinds of institutional arrangements, for example, will help you achieve your values. It can tell you what kind of political system, economic systems, churches, families, and so on may help you achieve your values. It cannot tell you what your values are. Yes, I have a question about these utopias. It seems to me if you can you develop trust between people, you have to have fairly small groups because once you get bigger and bigger groups and they don't have face-to-face -face interactions and don't know each other, the, the natural tendency is to split into competing groups and then you organize uh, confrontations and warfare and things like that. So. Um, these utopias work, I think, pretty well if you have small groups and if they're in a fairly affluent state, so there's no great stress and no um, competition to for the resources there. So I wondered if you thought about the size of the groups involved uh, for this sort of arrangement. Well, I mean, um, 
in order to achieve any of this kind of thing, we have to have small groups. And um, it's interesting that Ecotopia split off from the United States. It seceded. And uh, one person in Ecotopia made some comment about, you know, we have this kind of, uh, of uh, kinship with other small countries like, you know, Sweden, Norway, Austria, and so on. And I'm inclined to think this country's probably too big. And, I'm, you know, we might have to, we might, and some of the other large countries, China even, might have to split apart to achieve this. Now, typically what happens in these utopias is you, you do have these small units, but you also have long-distance communication with other small units elsewhere. So the primary group is these very small units, but you also have connections elsewhere, and, and people travel and know about other groups elsewhere. Um, now, as far as the affluence goes and the resources, uh, this reminds me of um, some of the books by Rian Eisler and other people who talk about the ancient goddess-oriented cooperative societies. They were small and agricultural and plentiful food, and they got conquered by other groups of people that were more warlike and who, ran, who were in more hostile territory like the steppes and ran out of resources and spread to these areas and then also spread their social organization. So this is a problem in Yao. It's like, you know, Maslow says about self-actualization. You need to have needs, not 100%, but to a large extent taken care of on a lower level to get to the self-actualization. So we do need to have plentiful resources and good ways of sharing it. Although sometimes once a relatively affluent society develops a social organization, they don't keep growing and growing and growing. They start limiting resources. And but by now, their social organization is in place that they can keep their resources plentiful. So it, it's a tricky business, but yeah, one does have to keep some small groups going and one does have to keep uh, resources adequate. Okay, we have another question over here. I was a little puzzled as to why you focused on imaginary societies where you can easily smuggle in all sorts of things you'd like to assume rather than dealing with real ones. Uh, which real ones? <laughs> Any, there are a lot of them to choose between. We've got a lot of them going around the world and have for a long time. Why pick imaginary societies? Well, it was, basically I was writing this for a journal of utopian studies. That was a lie. Um, now, I am interested in real ones that have this organization. Um, some of the people that I was saying say, said that some of the ancient groups have. There are various times in history, and Rihanna Eisler has also written about that. There have been subgroups of people that have developed them. Um, I'm, I'm interested in people who societies that break away from the assumption that everything has to be hierarchical, competitive, dog-eat-dog, some with winners and losers. Um, and to the extent that you can come up with large society or small subgroups that break away from that, I'm, I'm interested in them too. Yes, very much so. There's a lot of what, in fact, the utopian movement, the utopian society, also studies what are called intentional communities, which are people who develop these 
communal organizations of 40 or 50 people, maybe on an agricultural area or maybe in an urban neighborhood, and share resources, have councils and so on, and develop this kind of cooperative spirit. Yeah, I'm very much interested in that. Just that I was focusing on this because that was a particular article I wrote, and I can't talk about everything in 40 minutes. Okay. Next. Nobody's got a question. Yeah. I, I noticed the two eras, uh, 1988, the communication, and, and 2018, um, cooperation were yeah. 50 years after a lot of those books were written. And I was wondering where this comes from. And also, you talked about equality of sexes and cooperation and, and nonconformity. And, and I looked at it, Islam, and a lot of those societies, and it seemed like it was right for 600 AD, and it may not be adaptable, according to your criterion, to today. It okay, doesn't, what? It doesn't meet several of those criteria. Wait, what you're, okay, I'm not sure I understand your question. Your question is, um, is what people came up with in the 60s out of date now, unadaptable to the current reality? Is that what you're saying? Well, the question here was, did they really look 50 years ahead and, and, and pick dates for these John Calhoun did, yes. John Calhoun was writing in the 60s and 70s. Correct. Now, uh, uh, the dates are not exact. They're approximate. They're, that's close enough. Yeah. But yeah, he was looking ahead. And then the second part of the question is how much of this is, oh, wait, is wait. axioms versus theorems as to whether a certain social structure can work as we develop higher populations. Well, these are adjustments. These are adjustments that people make. Higher population, okay. What happened in Calhoun's schema is that as population grew, the number of interactions between people grew as the square of the population the number of satisfying interactions grew as the, um, as the population. So the ratio of satisfying to frustrating interactions gradually got smaller. So what Calhoun said is that we cope with this by changing the rules of the game, by changing it so that we can cope with the rising population. We developed these communications to cope with the rising population. Now we're going to have to develop these compassionate things to cope. We're going to have to get out of our traditional shell. You know, my, you know, my society, my religion is good, yours is bad kind of shell. Uh, tribalism, you know, but still, you know, bring people together in order to cope with the stresses caused by communication. So, the revolutions were. Are, in his schema, a reaction to the rising population. And the notion was, we've got a range of possible interactions. The brain doesn't limit us to, we can only do certain things. Human nature is very, very, very plastic. And so the faith is, it has not been proved to the contrary, so we have to keep going as if it is, that it can be shaped in this direction. 
how much of this is in the math, the theorems, and how much is it is the axioms and the values? Well, it's both. It's both. It's part. It's partly. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say that the faith is an axiom. That's right. But until the until there's been a theorem that proves it's impossible, uh, people are better off going and going and working for it rather than giving up. My my view. Yeah. Okay, uh, it seems to me that uh, you can't have a large-scale society without trust, and therefore technology without trust. You can have trust in the small group, but if you don't have rule of law and trust in that rule of law, then how can you build a society that can build skyscrapers or rockets? It doesn't seem possible. Yeah. So what? So what's your question? Well, the, the question is, you, know, you say the trust is inherent in these small groups, but it seems to me that it's inherent and far more important in a larger group. What do you think? And, and obviously, these three cultures are small. The, the cultures are small, but they, well, the, the people work within small cultures, but they still have communication with beyond the small group that they tend to be with and work with. There, there is a lot of, there, these are not Luddites. These are people who still have high technology. They communicate across long distances with other people who are living similarly to them in other places, typically. Um, interesting, I haven't had any women ask me anything. David, you have a question? Yeah, my, my question is kind of along the same lines. I mean, there, there are those who say there are, you know, we're kind of trending globally in terms of information, yeah. economy, uh, environmental issues that's necessary to kind of cooperate in some you know, concerted matter all over the world. If we've yeah. got these small communities kind of all doing their own thing, how do, how do you, what's the structure to confront global issues? Yeah, and that, that whole uh, um, slogan about think globally, act locally. And in fact, some people have talked about the tension between local stuff and global stuff. There's Benjamin Barber, I think his name is, he's a, yeah, what department is in, uh, maybe political science at Rutgers, he's written a book called Mac World versus Jihad. And Jihad doesn't necessarily refer to Muslims, it refers to any small group of people holding on to local traditions. Mac World refers to sort of the big corporations imposing uniformity. Now, the compassionate revolution in these kind of utopias is going to need to be a blend of both. Excuse me. Yes. What did you say? Needs to be a blend of both. Needs to be a blend of both the traditional society and the local culture, and the high technology and uh, you know broad culture. Um, that's interesting. Uh, just as a side thing, uh, Calhoun distrusted crowds. And I have a reporter, there's a reporter in Washington who's come to visit me who's gotten enamored of Calhoun's work and shares this disgust of crowds. And there's a guy who grew up on a farm in Montana. But my growing up in Chicago and New York, I see the value of liberal open attitudes coming out of big city settings. So we need. We need this kind of mixture and how to how to go about it. Like you know, like each utopian society, they a lot of it was set in San Francisco, but San Francisco looked a little more countrified than it than it does now. Um, but you still had sort of the urban values 
the cosmopolitan values, but you also had these, you know, small, small farm intimate values too. So you have to have some of both. Another question? Uh, yeah. In the current political situation, right, it's the $900 billion looting is what I would consider, the spending of the government for the more, you know, it's compassion. That's how it's being sold, right? We, we have to do this, print the money or borrow the money or do whatever. For those people who have lost their jobs, certainly George Bush was the compassionate conservative, right? So, in light of, you know, all the money that's been spent or all the actions that are going on now, George Bush with the, the Medicare prescription plan, you know, that was compassionate, you know, sold that way. Do not think we're doing for what you propose or what these other authors propose? Well, I think that I think the current stimulus plan, I don't know how it's going to end up. It has some potential. Um, you know, getting Senate and House to agree is going to be tough, so I don't know where it's going to end up, or whether how much of it will have to be gutted to get it to pass. But it has some potential. And, you know, bringing, bringing people who need work to jobs that need to be done for the good of society uh, is sort of a win-win thing. Um, and a lot of people have been advocating green technology. Tom Friedman has a whole book about that. So those kinds of things are a win-win. And, um, you know, I'm still somewhat a, even though I wasn't alive at the time of the New Deal, I'm still an unreconstructed New Dealer. I, you know, the WPA things and the things where they got artists going. I like that kind of stuff. Uh, you're, you're doing things that are good for people, and you're putting people to work at the same time. You're not making make-work jobs that'll get somebody rich. So, you know, I'm for that. Now, now you're, um, some of the compassionate conservatism actually is a disguised form of trickle down, disguised form of, you know, soaking everybody else to enrich the rich. But, uh, it, so I'm not too wild about that. But, you know, I also, the one way in which I've broken from sort of traditional liberalism is I don't believe in handouts. I believe in social programs that people are involved in. I don't believe in just handing people things. I believe in giving people the opportunity to do things for themselves. Um, Saul Alinsky uh, was a social organizer in Chicago, and there's a group in Tarrant County that's patterned after that. Um, and there's probably groups here in Dallas that are too. So, so yeah, I'm, that's sort of what I, where my blend of conservatism comes in, is I don't believe in just sort of the government doing things for people. But government money and opening things up can help people do things for themselves. And as an example of that, one of my neuroscience colleagues used the brain to argue uh, that there shouldn't be government social programs to let, things, let families take care of. He was particularly talking about the elderly. And I had a case right in my own family. Uh, my mother was living in California. Her father was no longer able to care for himself, was living in Toronto. He wanted to move down and be near her. She wanted that. But Canada has a national health system. America doesn't. So 
he was able to get 80% of his care at a very good place. In Toronto, he couldn't get it in California. So if we had a social program here, my mother could have taken her family responsibilities better than her not having a social program because her dad would have been right near her. So that's kind of where my blend of liberalism and conservatism on this would be. Another question? Over here. Technical question. Are there physical changes? As the brain, as the brain changes, a radical change in perception. Does the brain, does the brain have a physical change? Does the brain have a physical change? What do you mean by? What do you mean by physical? Well, something that's measurable. Um, sometimes. It depends on, I mean, there are all kinds of levels of change. Um, low levels of nourishment or high level of stress can actually affect the physical volume, you know, chronically during childhood. The things that happen when, I mean, every conversation we're having changes both of our brains biochemically. That's probably not, there may be some advanced techniques that say, okay, we can measure that there's more um, such and such chemical and such and such brain area, but that's much more subtle. So there's, there are some changes which are very physically obvious and some that are not. Yeah? Perhaps my frontal lobe isn't as developed as it needs to be, but <laughs> I've lost you somewhere where the topic of this was social and ethical implications of findings in neuroscience and psychology. Mm. Somewhere along the way, I got lost between, I guess, sitting right here in the year 2018 when this year of this compassion era. How do you propose then from, from current patterning in brain teaching or, like you said, the brain connection is influenced by environment, how in 12 years from now, or however long that is, was it 14, help me out here, I'm great at math, how are we going to get to the age of compassion if you're saying it's only in a small uh, test tube societies like in Madrid, New Mexico, or in uh, the island up in uh, Puget Sound, where they have these microcosm societies, then you tell us that it ha the world size has to reduce. Okay, well, level, we you know, nobody knows how, all right, these numbers of years are not absolutely sacred. Um, you know, Kelvin may not be a perfect prophet, um, but we need to move in certain directions, and really, a lot of what I've been doing, I see as getting arguments from neuroscience for what I would want to do anyway. It's not that we go in with chemicals and change people. It's that we see that humane policies and helpfulness to people and non-punitive environments and democracy of creativity and struck these social interactions as we're structuring them, I argue, make our brains work better. So it, it's a kind of constant positive feedback between the biology and the society. We can't separate what's social, what's biological. Um, and however long it takes, it takes, but <coughs> things can change, particularly in the current climate, much more rapidly than we think they can.
We can't accurately say things are going to be a certain way in five years. But I'm, what type of social and ethical, you see the social and ethical implications are going to change the society, culture, globally that much on an individual brain level? I mean, that's what I thought this was about, how the individual brain responds, patterns, and reacts to outside stimulus, whether it be societal or within the family. I mean, where? what do you see? Well, our, brain, our brains are divided. We, we are both nice, all of us are both nice and mean people at the same time. I know I am. Uh, and it's a matter of structuring the social interactions as much as possible to, it's not so much change our brain as selectively bring out some things that are there, selectively disinhibit <coughs> some of the patterns and selectively inhibit others. That can be done much more quickly than making it a brand, it's not a matter of making a brand new brain, it's a matter of inhibiting some parts of what's already there and encouraging other parts of what's already there. And that's much faster. Than, if you encourage something that's already there, that's faster. Yeah, surely. I guess what's confusing, I'm kind of where she is on some of this, because to me, I mean, I can see that this is a definition of the structure of how that occurs, but I can't Could you see, see given I can hear uh, I can hear uh, yeah okay no, I mean, uh, to me I mean when you look at humans I mean like some of the things you're describing are good descriptions of what can happen or does happen but I'm like what she's saying I don't see humans on any timetable ever shedding the things that invade our history so destructive and creative at the same time and I can't see that um, even though we understand far better than with science now how the brain actually comes to some of these decisions and with all the hormones you know how some things occur knowing that it's, it's like a dead end still because you can't even if, if you came out of like you said philosophy or you came out of religion or you came out of any just good nurturing whatever as a parent that our society or whatever, within the groups of humans, the propensity to fail on putting all that good stuff together is, is still more just a description, just as much as a religious description is. Okay, we don't shed it, but we can, we don't shed it, but we can work with it and try to control it. And I feel that we get more mileage out of believing the power of self-fulfilling prophecy, which is something that I'm not totally sure what the brain mechanisms are for, but the power of self-fulfilling prophecy tells me that if we believe, to the extent that we believe that change can, is possible, that makes it more possible than if we believe it's impossible. But then on a broader scale is where I find, I mean, I would tend to think that the people who believe that, such as yourself, would be people who automatically do that. Whereas if I think of uh, Carl Rove or if I think of Dick Cheney, I can't see them surviving yeah, that. I don't, I, that's, what, ha, what drives out and out sociopaths, as I think those, I agree with you, those two people are, is something I, <laughs> I don't know. Now, you know, the Huxley, Huxley had, uh, of the three writers I wrote, had the best handle on that, but we try to take these people in childhood, you know, see 
if they're going to develop in certain directions and try to get them, get them somewhere where they're not expecting to prosper in society by using their bullying. Now, you know, discouraging bullying in schools is one thing. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, bullying in schools was just thought of as part of a territory. And I even went to, I even went to good, expensive private schools, like the same one Obama's kids went to in Chicago. They're still bullying. They're still accepted as just par for that work. But nowadays, people are saying, well, it doesn't have to be. There is this nature, but we can control it. We can, we can say that certain behaviors aren't OK. And this is part of the reason why I point out that um, some people misread these utopian societies as anything goes or lack of rules. They're not. They, they have rules. They're just different rules, different methods of control. Methods of control that respect people, that draw out people's individuality. But there's control nevertheless, particularly with kids. Um, and, sir, and there's laws. So we do need to, the best I can think of, I don't know an awful lot about how to deal with sociopaths and bullies. There are even some in my workplace I don't know how to deal with effectively. Um, but don't spread that around. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss for that. But I think that if the earlier you start in childhood, the more there's some chance you might deal with it. See, that's, I guess that's what I'm missing is what, what do you look at? How do you think we're going to get here? Is, I mean, I've, there's a gap in, in what I'm hearing you say of the patterning and how we develop as an individual. And then you've all of a sudden jumped to this huge paradigm shift culturally or globally, how we're going to get there. Yeah. That's what it, what, what is, is this thing working? Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, I thought. Let's give you this. You have to put it up to your mouth. Yeah, that, that one. <laughs> okay, how do, you, how, do you get, how do you get there? Well, you have to get there by do, sort of doing, doing the right thing whenever possible. Um, you need to use science as an argument for doing, for doing the right thing. That, that's really what it boils down to. I mean, you know, some people in some systems say that meanness works, that hierarchical bosses work, et cetera, et cetera. I say it, it doesn't, and that compassionate policies do work. And, you know, I think what, what we know about the brain, I mean, admittedly, I was looking for it when I searched in the brain, but I still think it backs it up. I mean, I'm not 100% objective about it, but I still think it does. Okay, we'll have to take about two more questions. Wes? Okay, uh, uh, I the, uh, I, I've got a pretty loud voice, yeah. so uh, I hope the audience will forgive me, and I hope you will forgive me, but when I saw that, this is a uh, not very esoteric question. Yeah. When I, when I saw this brain and social change, something came to my mind that I constantly hear over time, and that is, when do people stop blaming their parents for their behavior? How long does that take? <laughs> okay, so you're... I mean, really, I've wondered the connection, because what I hear so much is people say, well, my parents sent my brain, and I'm that way for life, and therefore I have no responsibility. Well, no. 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 You don't That's buy that? No, of course oh. not. 
You mean people well, have to take responsibility? <laughs> okay, thank you. I just. <laughs> I'm saying that parents, parents, schools, churches, and society as a whole all have effects on our brain, and they last, but some are reversible and some are not. That's all I'm saying. Um, I'm not talking about blame or anything like that. Okay, one more question back here. Okay. Um, I want to recap briefly and just make sure that I understand the situation properly. So, um, there are sociological factors which will influence individ um, token individuals and affect them on a biological level such that it will affect their brain pathways in the sense that it will protect them. Um, yeah. will have a tendency to produce certain chemicals more so and consequently their behavior will go in that way. But at the same time, there's a genetic predisposition to act in certain ways which right. will influence the sociological things. Right. Then what you're saying also is that um, the idea is um, it seems as though you know you basically have a culture that's kind of rooted in a certain kind of pattern until it has to respond to some environmental change on a broader scale. Um, it, you know, basically, for instance, uh, there will be some new technology introduced, or there will be some people come um, increase in population of just not necessarily one population, but multiple populations, which are competing for resources, which in turn will cause cultural developments. Yeah. Of it. So my so basically, it's stuck until then. So. Um, wait a sec. Saying it's stuck <laughs> implies that any society at any time is uniformly one thing. I, Saying it's stuck, I, I, I would disagree with stuck. It's too stuck. What, what I mean is just not necessarily stuck as in there's no change. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that's absolutely static. I'm just saying that you don't have, um, you know, any major revolution. My question is it seems to me um, that we have technological advancement. Um, basically, it's like how do we how do we achieve a more global, utopic kind of thing? Yeah. Um, if we gain if we gain changes in society based on responses um, to new environmental factors, it seems that it would come about due to the heavy, heavy increase in communication, the ability to um, just increase transportation, right. and so on. Well, that's, but, that's why the communication revolution had to proceed in fact. Yes. Um, but my question, I suppose, is how do you push towards a passionate response if ultimately our biological factors influence our sociological um, our social institutions, which in turn influence our biological act, our biological states. So it seems like it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to me like it can come from within so much as um, it's something which it has to be a response to something. So that said, I'm wondering how you can manipulate the circumstance so. The so we're responding in a different Well, way. I don't think that we have to manipulate. The circumstances are already here. I mean, I hear this daily bad economic moves. I hear it hourly. We're responding to that. Hopefully we can creatively respond and make our society better from that. Um, a lot of things, global warming, 
Uh, the change is happening all the time. It's a matter of how do we create it and deal with it. Now, how much free will there is? That you know, that's a whole other thing. You know, I, I, I mentioned what Singer said about that, and that's sort of where I'm at. Um, I don't know what the ultimate answer is, but you know, I believe in going going with the assumption that things are good. Um, you know, you have to, of course, uh, prepare yourself for possible disappointment. But still, on the whole, going going with the assumption that the change is doable, you're more likely to do more of the right things than if you don't. Than if you just get cynical and say, oh, you know, our biology is too limited. And, and, you know, I, I really think, you know, the object lesson as for anybody who studies the brain, anybody who studies behavioral patterns, is how non-uniform, uh, non-unitary it is, how much individual difference there is, how much contextual change there is with each person, how much there are species differences, range regional differences, etc. How deucedly complex the whole system is. So far from really limiting and constraining. Okay, we're out of time. It's a uh, show appreciation for Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs>